0: We're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, just the first two verses this evening. And um, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and everlasting word. The Apostle Paul, now writing to this church that he was so intimately involved in, writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There's a scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's one of those scenes that every time I read it, I'm struck with the sheer greatness of the way in which Bunyan captures what he is seeking to capture in that great parabolic or symbolic uh, narrative of that journey of the believer through the wilderness of this world heading to the celestial city and as Christian has left the city of destruction as he has began his journey and as he is journeying he comes to the house of a man named Interpreter and it's one of the most significant places for Christian to come because as Christian comes to the house of the Interpreter he is essentially going to be given everything that is necessary to guide him in his journey and uh, very on, early on in the chapter on the interpreter's house, this is what Bunyan writes about um, the interpreter. The interpreter commanded his man to light a candle in his house, and he bid Christian follow him. He brought him into a private room, and he bid his, his man open a door. When he had done this, Christian saw the picture of a very grave person hang up against the wall. This was the fashion of it. He had his eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand. The law of truth was written upon its lips. The world was behind his back. He stood as if he pleaded with men, and a crown of gold did hang over his head. Then Christians said, what does this mean? Interpreter said, the man whose picture this is is one of a thousand. He can beget children, travail in birth with children, nurse them himself when they are born, and whereas you see him with his eyes lifted to heaven, the best of books in his hand, and the law of truth written on his lips, it is to show you that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners, even as also you see him stand as if he pleaded with men, and whereas you see the world cast behind him, and that a crown hangs over his head, that is to show you that's slighting and despising the things that are present for the love that he has in his master's service, he is sure in the world that comes next to have glory for his reward. Now, most certainly the man in the picture and interpreter's house is the Apostle Paul. And what the interpreter is doing as he points to this picture, as Christian is just setting out on his journey, is he is essentially saying that the man in this picture has been appointed to be the most important guide to you throughout your journey. I think that it is arguable that we could say that next to the Lord Jesus himself, there is no greater guide as a one of the men that God has used in the inspiration of scripture than that of the apostle Paul. The apostle Paul will actually say that though he deemed himself the least among the saints and the chief of sinners and not worthy to be called an apostle, that he was the foremost of the apostles, that God had given Paul more revelation than he had given anyone else in human history. In fact, the Apostle Paul had so much revelation, he had so much knowledge, he was given so much insight into what he'll call in this letter the mystery of the gospel, that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he will actually tell us that he had to receive a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, and in his own words, lest I be exalted Above measure, because of the abundance of revelation given to me. So the Apostle Paul was acutely aware of the unique position in which he had been placed as an apostle. Now, we want to consider several things as we come into this letter this evening. We want to consider the letter itself. Um, Just a general overview of this letter, what what Paul is seeking to accomplish in this letter, how this letter is divided. We want to consider the author. We know that that's Paul. We're going to consider the titles that Paul uses. We want to consider the recipients of this letter. So we want to consider the letter, the author, the recipients. And finally, we want to consider the greeting that Paul gives in this letter. We'll notice that um, the letter to the Ephesians, as I've noted already, uh, has been termed John Calvin's most famous and favorite epistle. John Calvin preached through um, the book of Ephesians in Geneva over a period of almost a year. I believe it was 1547. And while, and this is remarkable in church history, while John Calvin was preaching and fueling the Reformation against all that Rome had done in taking away, way, the light of the gospel, and the truth of scripture, as he is at the height and the heyday of his of his time in Geneva, who is sitting under John Calvin listening to their sermons but John Knox. John Knox, some of you will know, was the great father of Presbyterianism. So great was this man that it was said of John Knox that only one time in human history did God answer this prayer, oh God, give me Scotland, and God answered that prayer and gave John Knox Scotland for the sake of the gospel. So great a man was John Knox that God used John Knox for the conversion of almost the entire nation at one point and for the fueling of great missionary endeavors throughout the world. Now that's interesting because I believe, and I can't prove this, but I believe that God used John Calvin's preaching of the book of Ephesians in a significant way because the book of Ephesians very basically can be said to be Paul's greatest letter. The idea of the gospel as mystery is thrown against the background of the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, as we've been hearing over the past couple of weeks, was that city that Paul entered. It was a city of great learning, a city of great wisdom, and a city of great idolatry. You had the great temple to Artemis, Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the known world. You had in Ephesus a spiritual stronghold of darkness, When multitudes heard the Apostle Paul preach about Jesus and they were converted, um, in Acts chapter 19, we read that those that were converted brought their occult books, their magic books, their witchcraft books, and they burned them publicly to show their allegiance to Jesus. Now, I think uh, it has been rightly said that this letter is the greatest letter that Paul has ever written. Now, you may say, wait a minute, what about Romans? Well, I'll put it this way. Romans is 16 chapters. Romans is an argument against false teaching and the most masterful polemical book in the New Testament, defending the gospel against Judaism and against the perversions of the gospel. And yet the book of Ephesians says almost everything that the book of Romans says, but it says it in six chapters without any sort of argumentation, without any sort of personal uh, touch from the Apostle Paul himself, and says it to a church that he was intimately involved in, it's as if this is Paul's masterpiece, and he is distilling down those central truths of the grace of God in the gospel. He will use in chapter 1 that refrain over and over that what God the Father has done in Jesus Christ, and applied to us by the Holy Spirit, All the work of redemption requires all of the Godhead, and then it mounts up to the praise of the glory of his grace. That is the overarching theme of the book of Ephesians, that what God does in redeeming sinners like us in Jesus Christ by grace is that he would get glory and would get praised for the magnificence of the freeness of his grace. If there is one word that the letter to the Ephesians captures more than any other, it is the word grace. If you want to understand the grace of God and the gospel, you want to get this letter. Sinclair Ferguson has said in this letter, Paul gives us the essence of his understanding of the gospel in the most coherent manner in which he expresses it in the New Testament. Here, in a most basic way, explains to us what the gospel is and how the gospel works. In the first three chapters, he explains the riches of the gospel, what he sometimes refers to as the mystery of the gospel, the treasures of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And then there's a kind of hinge at the beginning of chapter 4. Therefore, he says, in the light of the way in which you have been submerged into the glory of the wisdom of God and the treasures of grace in Jesus Christ, here is the way in which it is going to run into your life in a transforming way. First of all, as a community of believers, then as individual Christian believers. Now, what Ferguson has just said is that you could take this book and you could divide it in two very neat, clean subsections. Chapters 1 through 3 are an exposition of what the gospel is, and how it works. It's all the saving benefits we have in Jesus. It's how Jesus accomplishes all that he accomplishes for our redemption. And then chapters 4 through 6 give us the application of the gospel. They get, 1 through 3 gives us the facts, the indicatives of Christianity. Chapters 4 through 6 gives us the imperatives of Christianity. Now, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, if you are conversant with the scriptures, you will know that there is one other book that is very similar to Ephesians that is the letter to the Colossians much of the same content is shared in those books they are both called prison letters paul presumably was in prison when he wrote these he will sometimes speak of himself as the prisoner of the lord or intimate that he is writing to them from prison and there is a sense where both of these letters are meant to be circulated to all the churches not just to the church in Ephesus, but as I meditated on this in preparation for this sermon, something struck me that I've never thought about before, and that's this, that the only church in the first century planted by the apostles that received more than one personal letter from more than one individual was the church in Ephesus. Here, the apostle Paul He's writing to that church that he had planted where he had spent three plus years where he had trained elders. And as we saw this morning, the Lord Jesus gave that letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter two. It's remarkable that this is the only church that gets two letters from two different individuals, the great apostle Paul and the savior himself, making this church of supreme importance to us in how we focus on what the apostle Paul is saying in it. Well, uh, while there's much more in the content of this letter, and we're going to get into that over the weeks ahead, I want us to talk, secondly, about the author of this letter. You know, it almost seems it almost seems redundant for Paul to put his name at the beginning of every letter. And uh, most scholars will say, well, he's just writing a letter in that common um, that Koine Greek way in which letters were written in the ancient world. And there's something very natural and something very simple and something very common about the way in which he writes, who he is and, and his greetings. And yet there's something unusual about what Paul's doing here. Um, we just finished first John and, and, if I'm honest with you, I'm always a little bit frustrated by John just jumping into things. His gospel, he just jumps in. It's like mid-thought. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You're like, whoa, who are you? Where are we going? Where did we come from? First, John's a little bit like that, too. He just opens that letter, that which was from the beginning. And you're like, what? Who are you? <laughs> we know it's John. We know that from church history. We know it from his writing style. We know it from other intimations, but the Apostle Paul is very careful in mentioning who he is and identifying who he's writing to. Uh, when I was at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, I'll never forget, I was, <clears throat> I was set to teach, I believe, one of the college classes, um, and I, I was set to talk on um, how the Proverbs deal with sinful emotions such as sinful anger and whatnot. And a matter of weeks had gone by, and I had forgotten that that I was doing that talk. And I went to my mailbox there in the offices to see if there were any packages or letters, and there was um, a document folded up, tri-folded in there, and I took it out and I opened it, and it was about 20 different verses about sinful anger. And there was nobody's name on it, and I thought, uh uh-oh, is somebody trying to be passive-aggressive and tell me that... They think I need this. I completely forgot somebody was helping me prepare for my talk. And my conscience convicted me because I know that I can have some sinful anger. And I thought, man, it would really be helpful to know who put this in my box. And, and as I thought about that and as I thought about this, you know, while it may seem a waste of time, we know we, we read the Bible, we want to jump into the juicy parts. We want to get into the substantive parts. We want to go to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We just want to skip right over verses 1 and 2. We just want to say, yeah, 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 I got it. Paul, an apostle by the will of God to people in Ephesus. We got it. And yet, this introduction is supremely important. Why why does the apostle Paul identify himself the way he does? Um, You know, on one hand, it is very common. It is a very common way in which people um, in the first century uh, dictated their letters. We know that because we found many letters since the late 1800s, and we can tell that that was common. And yet, on the other hand, the Apostle Paul is, in a sense, defending his apostolic ministry. And he is, he is essentially giving the people to whom he's writing cause to receive what he's writing, not as the word of men, as he'll say in 1 Thessalonians 1, but as it is in truth the word of God, which works effectually in you who believe. The Apostle Paul, if anything, is a man who is deeply concerned with explaining that he is not writing as a mere man, a mere letter like any other letter. He is deeply concerned with helping those to whom he is writing understand that he has been commissioned by God, that God has sent him, that he has been called, that he he has been entrusted with a stewardship. You know, chapter three, by the way, very interestingly, Paul is one of the least intimate of all Paul's letters. Um, there's very little where he reveals his heart. There's, there's not much where he reveals the burdens of his soul. You, you find that the Apostle Paul, for, um, for such a type A alpha male who would drive you crazy probably, um, was actually a very kind-hearted, deeply caring man who often revealed the burdens of his heart. He often revealed the burdens he had for the churches, the deep care, the way in which he felt forsaken by his friends and hurt by those who had rejected the gospel and caused harm to his ministry. The Apostle Paul is the most transparent of the apostles, if I can put it that way. And yet there's almost no transparency here. Paul doesn't open his heart to the Ephesians. It's the least intimate of his letters. There's very little personal about this letter to the Ephesians for the Apostle Paul. And yet notice in chapter 3, that Paul does give us a sort of biographical statement about what has been entrusted to him. Almost the only thing that you find out about the Apostle Paul in this letter is that he is a man of deep prayerfulness and that he is a man who has been entrusted with these eternal, hidden mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest mysteries the world has ever seen. Notice that Paul says... In verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul is, is acknowledging that some of them may not realize that he has been commissioned and sent as an apostle. In the intro, when it says Paul, an apostle, apostle means sent one, he is sent from Jesus Christ. In fact, God the Father had said at the baptism of Jesus and at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him. There is a very real sense in which we should listen to no one except Jesus Christ. And yet we know that God has so ordered things as to speak by the spirit of Christ through the prophets in the Old Testament, through the apostles in the New Testament, and that when the word of God is read and proclaimed in its purity as the Spirit of Christ moved in these men and entrusted to them the deep mysteries of the gospel, it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking. You know what's interesting about this letter is that in chapter 2, notice in chapter 2 that um, as Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, And he begins to unpack the idea of peace. Notice in verse 14, for he himself, speaking about Jesus, he himself is our peace. He has made Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and making one new man out of the two. And then notice verse, verse 17, the apostle Paul says this, and you have to think, He says, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's Gentiles, and to those who were near, that's Jews. When did Jesus come to Ephesus? Are the Mormons right that Jesus went to other places that are not recorded in the Bible? No. When did Jesus go to Ephesus? He went to Ephesus When the Apostle Paul went to Ephesus and when the Apostle Paul proclaimed the mysteries of the gospel, it was the living and reigning and risen and ruling Lord Jesus Christ preaching through the Apostle Paul peace to those who receive the word of God. When Paul spoke the scriptures and the mystery of the gospel, it was Christ speaking. That's one of the beautiful things about preaching. Why do we make such a big deal about a guy who's not that funny, getting up here, a guy who goes too long like he did this morning, preaching God's word to you. Why do we make such a big deal about that? Because we believe that Jesus speaks when the word is preached in a special way that was true of the apostolic ministry and the apostolic writings. And so at the outset of this letter, Paul's not just saying, hey guys, it's me, it's Paul. Love you guys, I miss you. He's saying, this is who I am. I'm a steward of God's mysteries, the everlasting mysteries. The mysteries of Ephesus, the knowledge and and what led the people to dabble in magic arts and in all kinds of spirituality and and philosophies was the very thing Paul was engaged in battle against and saying, Jesus has given me this everlasting mystery. Notice what he'll call it. Notice verse 4. He says, when you read this, what we're preaching on, when you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Notice verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You could say in a very real sense, that in those little words, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, he is, he is preparing to, to unpack and unload everything that he's about to say based on the authority that Jesus had invested in him. Now, I cannot tell you how many people I've met, uh, family members of uh, dear congregants in this congregation, who accept Jesus' word but not Paul's word. I have had many people in my short, unproductive life tell me, well, you know, I like what Jesus says. Paul was just a man. Well, Paul was just a man, but he was a man who was superintended by the Holy Spirit, and he wrote the very word of God, and everything that he's saying in Ephesians is the mystery of Christ that had been hidden from ages and from generations, but is now being made known to his saints by the gospel through the Holy Spirit that he preached to them. And that makes this of supreme importance. When we read the words, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, we are essentially having the Holy Spirit as the interpreter of Scripture Fix our eyes on that painting as Christian saw that painting in the interpreter's house with that grave-looking man with his eyes up to heaven with a book in his hand, ready to lead the way with the world behind him, with glory set before him, saying, Come with me. I will beget you to God as children. I will be a spiritual father to you. I will bring you to the Lord Jesus Christ. I will guide you through the entirety of this journey. That's, Paul is saying all of that in this letter. Now, it's helpful for us, uh, thirdly, to consider briefly the recipients of this letter. And you'll notice that Paul says here in um, the second part of verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. There are two ways that the Apostle Paul describes those to whom he's writing. He, in a sense, gives two titles. Eric Alexander says the two titles that Paul gives to the believers in Ephesus capture for us the two sides of believing. First, they have relied on Christ for eternal life, therefore they are saints. Second, they are those upon whom Christ can rely, therefore they are called faithful. I really like that. They have relied on Christ, he has set them apart for himself. Christ can rely on them, as faithful witnesses in the world, therefore they are called saints and faithful ones. Now, I, I think one of, the, um, one of the richest ways that we are identified in Scripture is, is that of saints. And yet it's one of the least appropriated and most misunderstood. The Roman Catholic Church has said that if you are some kind of super awesome um, Christian who has loved people, Um, in some kind of super amazing way that you somehow super arrogate for yourself that's the big word they use i didn't make that up you super arrogate for yourself all these good works that overflow to really crummy christians who are just living a humdrum life and um and those good works overflow to to others so that they get grace from other sinners not from Jesus, from other people who have super-irrigated these good works, and that once they have super-irrigated enough good works and they've put enough extra good works in there for other people, I, you look at me with blank stares. I get it. This is really what they teach. I, I mean that. I am not making this up. And, and once they have put enough extra good works in the bank account for crummy old Christians that don't do a lot of good works, then they attain the level of sainthood and they are canonized. And, and for the life of me, I mean, I know how we get there in church history. There, there's a very complicated explanation for that. But for the life of me, I cannot understand how anyone can read Ephesians 1.1 1, 1 and not get that Paul is saying, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You have been sainted. My name is Nicholas. People used to make fun of me as a kid. I was Saint Nicholas constantly. Um, You know what? I am Saint Nicholas. And you are Saint whoever you are, if you're in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, if you're trusting the Savior alone for salvation, if you're resting in the sovereign grace of God for your redemption, you're not trusting in your own works, you are a saint. Now, this is tremendous. John Calvin, in one of his sermons, in his first sermon in that series that he preached, which John Knox was under, on this book, he is dealing with this idea of the title saint being uh, applied to all the believers. And, and and Calvin understands well how much Rome had perverted uh, the idea of sainthood and, and how there were all these people running around like they were models of piety and godliness when they weren't trusting in Jesus at all. They were trusting in their own works. And this is what... Calvin says, because this is going to temper a little bit, the fact that you are saints if you're in Christ. It's going to temper it just a bit. Calvin says, St. Paul shows that all the holiness of men is nothing else but pretense until God has brought them to his own service and dedicated and consecrated them to it by faith. For we are all unclean by nature, and nothing but infection can come from us. It is true that if men put on some fine outward show and appearance, they will be accounted as righteous as can be. I can just hear Calvin being sarcastic. And their virtues will be commended everywhere, just as we see that a man can acquire the reputation of great perfection if he but possesses some fine qualities. But we must remember that it is said in Acts chapter 15 that God cleanses men's hearts by faith. God cleanses men's hearts by faith, and he had great reason to do so. For as Jeremiah the prophet says, man's heart is a pit of horrible confusion. Jeremiah seventeen nine. We ourselves do not perceive it. I, I love this. We ourselves do not perceive how, how horrible a pit of corruption our hearts are, but God has clearer eyes than me. Oh, that is so sweet. I read that. I was like, we don't see how corrupt we and others are, but God has clearer eyes than me. Calvin says, be that as it may, let us assure ourselves of this, that all the holiness which men imagine they have is but corruption and abomination before God until such time as they are made one by the faith of the gospel. So if you're in Jesus, it is not, and you are a saint. And you are called a saint, not because of anything intrinsic in you, not because of any greatness in you, not because of any fine qualities in you. You know, I often say, sadly, that many people in, in North America, in churches, they really have a view of God that, you know, God just thinks you are just so amazing. That is not the testimony of the Bible anywhere. God loves you way more than you know. But he loves you in spite of what you are. And because of what Jesus is. He loves you with an everlasting love because he is a God full of mercy and grace. And because he wants to lavish his grace and mercy on you in Jesus. Not because you are so just amazingly awesome. You are amazingly sinful. And I am amazingly sinful. And yet we're saints in Christ. Now if we are saints, by default, de facto, we... We'll be faithful to Christ. We will long to be faithful to the Savior. We will long to be faithful in his worship. We will long to be faithful in our witness to him. We will long to be faithful in our walk before him. We will want to be faithful In our Christian living, the Apostle Paul is actually going to tell us what it looks like for us to live in accord with the gospel and to be faithful from chapters 4 to 6 of this great letter. He's going to say, now that Christ has done all this to make you a saint and bring you to himself and redeem you, here then is how we ought to live as become the followers of Jesus Christ. And so Paul addresses them as the saints and as faithful. Now, I want to just point out one brief thing here about the recipients, one more. He says that they're in Ephesus. He doesn't say to the saints and faithful who should separate from the world completely and go live in caves monastically. He doesn't say to the saints and the faithful who transcend time and space and don't need to do anything with anybody else. He puts them in two spheres. He says that they are in Christ and they are in Ephesus. I love that. If you are A believer, you have two identities. You, your identities are you are in Christ. You're united to him by faith and you are in union with him and you are in Richmond Hill. You are in Savannah or you are in Hinesville. You are a citizen of those two realms and you are to live as a citizen of those two realms and you are to live out what you are in Christ in Richmond Hill. You are to live out who you are in Jesus in the community around you. You are to model for people what it means to be a believer. Now, we know we fail. We know we fall. We're going to hear all about the work of redemption, forgiveness, and cleansing. But we are to be conscious of who we are. Paul would want to stir us up to that end. Well, fourth and finally, very briefly, he gives them this great and gracious greeting. Notice verse 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the two great pillars of Christianity, grace and peace. God extends all of his grace to you in Christ, and God makes peace through the blood of the cross of the Son of God. If you took these two great benefits from our God, that he is gracious to us and that he gives us peace, and you ran them through this letter, you would see that really all the Apostle Paul is doing is unpacking those two ideas. What is the grace of God, and what peace do we have in Jesus Christ? And at the end of the day, what Paul is going to say in this letter is that all of God's grace comes to us only and totally in Jesus Christ. And he's going to explain that Jesus coming and taking flesh to himself and dying and hanging on the cross and taking all of our transgressions upon himself and breaking down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile and and taking away the weapons of principalities and powers taking away the, the weapons of Satan and forces of darkness that what Jesus is going to do on the cross is he he's going to make peace first and foremost vertically between God and men he is going to make peace through the blood of his cross he is going to reconcile us to God in one body through his death on the cross and he is going to make peace horizontally between people who at different times were at hostility with themselves I want to say this this morning The singular goal of your life, I'm sorry, this evening, still light out. The the singular goal of your life ought to be to see and realize the grace and peace of God in your relationship with the Lord and then in your relationship with everyone around you. You should think, as a saint and a faithful one, in Christ, in Richmond Hill, I am to be a manifestation of, of God's grace, both in my relationship with the Lord and with my relationship with others, and I am to be a conduit of his peace, both in understanding the peace I have received and the peace that I am to make with others. I think that is so beautiful that Paul is, he is telling them that God wants you to have these things. Now, I remember as a young Christian wrestling through, why... Why isn't the Holy Spirit mentioned here? It's an interesting question. Paul often um, greets with this similar greeting of grace and peace or grace, mercy, and peace um, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I used to think now, it's odd. I thought we were Trinitarian. I thought we believed in three persons in the Godhead, not two persons in the Godhead. Why is the Holy Spirit getting slighted in this intro? It, doesn't seem, it didn't seem to make any sense. I had no answer for it. And then as I was reading, and you'll know why I love Jonathan Edwards so much, as I was reading his unpublished essay on the Trinity, Jonathan Edwards takes up this question. He says, I can think of no other good account that can be given of the Apostle Paul's wishing grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the beginning of his epistles without ever mentioning the Holy Spirit As we find it 13 times in salutations, in the beginning of his epistles, except that the Holy Spirit is himself the love and grace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and he communicates that love and grace between the Father and the Son. Now, this is deep. I think Edwards is right. God is love. God is wisdom. God does not have wisdom. Sometimes we mistakenly say God has a lot of wisdom. No, God is wisdom. God is his attributes. He is just. He is holy. He is wise. He is grace. He is mercy. He is wrath. He is his attributes. And yet in a special way, within the mystery of the Godhead, and this is profound, The Father and the Son are always delighting in each other. The Son tells us that. He says that he always delighted to do the Father's will. And they speak of that mutual delighting. The Father's always delighting in the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in in the Godhead, the Father and the Son are face to face with each other, the Apostle John tells us in John 1. There he is toward himself in the multiplicity of his persons. And yet what Edwards is saying is that the Holy Spirit, who is fully God, he is fully worthy of our worship, he is the one who applies the redemption of the Son to us, is in the Godhead the communication of the grace and the peace and the love between the Father and the Son. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Um, the Holy Spirit is called two things, well, more than two things, but within the realm of the Godhead, he is called the Spirit of the Father, and he's called the Spirit of Christ. He, the Father and the Son, share the Holy Spirit. If you just took that and walked out of here and tried to think about that, it would hurt your brain. It would hurt your brain if you actually could even begin to comprehend that the Holy Spirit is fully God, just like the Father and the Son, But that the Father and the Son share the same Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the communicative agent of all of the sweet, wonderful, delightful things of the Godhead. And I think what Paul is saying, and he'll tell us this at the end of chapter one, is that the Holy Spirit is the one that communicates that grace and that peace to us. That he will come and he will take all that Jesus did at the cross and he will make it applicable to us, and we will be sealed by that Spirit. And we will live in that spirit. And we will make war against principalities and powers, chapter 6 will be told, by that spirit. And the Holy Spirit will communicate the grace and the peace from the Father and the Son to you and me. I hope that this will just whet your appetite a little bit. As we come into this great letter, I hope that when we come out of it on the other side, the end result is that we'll be better worshipers that we will understand more of the grace of God, that we will be more grounded in the fact that our salvation is nothing of what we have done whatsoever, that it is merely by God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, that we will delight ourselves more in the persons of the Godhead, understanding more that it took all of the Godhead for all the work of redemption, and that we will learn to live and walk as those who are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear let him hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are weighty things, and we know that you have given us many weighty truths by um, the ministry of the great Apostle Paul, and we are grateful, Lord, for this great letter. And we are grateful that you have given us such a guide as the Apostle Paul. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that he has been entrusted with the great mystery of that um, that hidden Uh, revelation about you and your father and about the peace that we have now through your blood and the the peace that we have um, with men on earth because of the gospel we pray our father that you would deepen our understanding of your grace in the gospel we pray that you would uh give our give us a great understanding not only in our minds but in our hearts that we might be a people that exist for the praise of the glory of your grace we pray these things in jesus name Amen.